Our reading this morning is from the book of 1 Samuel, it's an Old Testament reading, chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, page 296 in your Red Pew Bible. If you'll turn to that, I'll lead us in a a prayer of illumination. Please pray with me. Lord, we come to you on this beautiful Sunday morning to study your word. Open our eyes and ears and our hearts and our minds to your word that we might understand fully their meaning to us. In your name we pray, amen. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be priest over his prince, over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found. Now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you loaves of bread, two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that you shall come to Gilbeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines, And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hands finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. And when they came to Gilbay, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Good morning. Today's New Testament reading actually comes out of two sections out of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 8 through 15. Then we'll jump to Acts chapter 7, verses 54 uh, through 60. It actually all starts on page 1163 of your pew Bible. Uh, It's a long section of scripture. I got uh, close to 70 verses. I thought, no, I can't read all of that. So we're going to take a little bit from the beginning, a little bit from the end, and hopefully fill it all in in the middle. Uh, So Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. 
Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenes and of the Alexandrians and those from Sicilia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. We're going to jump now to chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. If that commercial teaches us anything, it is that talk is cheap. I would do anything for love, but I wouldn't do that. I would do anything for love, but don't ask me to give you my last Dr. Pepper. I would do anything for love except for share bacon with you. It extends into other areas of our lives. Sometimes my wife and I are traveling together and she's like, I'm so hungry I could eat anything. I'm like, let's go to Buffalo Wild Wings. And she's like, but I won't do that. I'd do anything to get a good grade in this class. Would you study? Well, it even extends into our faith. We read the story of Stephen who is the first martyr of the church, and, and we say, you know what, Orlando? I would do anything for God. I'd do anything for the cause of Christ. I would even die for the cause of Christ. Great. But my question isn't whether or not you're willing to die for the cause of Christ. My question really is, are you willing to live for the cause of Christ? I really don't think any of us in this room, and I could be wrong, I could be wrong, things could change, but I don't think in the present day and age that any of us in this room will be asked to lay down our lives for the cause of Christ. But I do know for sure that we all have the opportunity to live out a transformed life because of the cause of Christ or for the cause of Christ. Stephen, before he died for Christ, lived a transformed life for the cause of Christ. As we walk through the book of Acts, We're reminded that we're a people who have encountered the Spirit of God. What we sometimes forget is that this encounter with the Spirit of God is transformational. It changes who we are. 
Danny just read that passage out of the scriptures. As we look at Saul in the Old Testament. When he encounters the prophet Samuel, Samuel gives him this long laundry list of things that are going to happen to him. And among that list is, and then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will be changed into a different man. And that happens. He goes and he sees the men and he sees the prophets. And he, when, he, when all these things kind of line up, the spirit of the Lord rushes upon him and he is changed into a different person. So much so that people are saying, wait a minute, is that... Is that Saul? Is that, is that who? And, and it becomes a proverb. This idea of the spirit of God coming upon Saul changes him. We could look in the New Testament. We could look in the New Testament at Peter. When we see Peter in the New Testament, one of the stories that sticks out in our mind is Peter's denial of Christ. As Christ is coming before him, and they say, hey, aren't you the one, uh, aren't you one of those followers? Aren't you one of those disciples? Didn't you, did, three times he says no, and one time he says no and actually curses. And then we see Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, standing before the leaders of, their, uh, the, leaders of the day. And it says, so they called them, Peter and John, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Here's Peter who who denied Christ. But he's the one who preaches the first sermon after the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God comes upon him. He preaches a sermon after the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people come to know him. And he's taken before the council and given the opportunity to deny Christ again. He says, I can't. I can't stop preaching. What's the difference? The difference is that Peter has had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. We know that Stephen had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And why do we know that? We know that in part because of Will's sermon last Sunday. Stephen is one of the deacons. And when they were choosing deacons, what were they looking for? They weren't looking for men with the most business acumen, men with the most successful lives. They were literally looking for men filled with the Spirit. Stephen is a man full of the Spirit. And the result is he really does live a life that is marked by transformation. When you and I are filled with the Spirit, we'll also live these transformed lives. So what does living a life full of the Spirit look like? There are several things that we see out of the life of Stephen, and the first one is this. The first one is he lives a life Filled with deep conviction. Acts chapter 6 verse 8 says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. The ESV right here in this particular passage takes that word uh, full of grace. Takes a Greek word pistis and translates it grace. But it also takes this same word pistis and instead of translating it grace... In other portions of the Bible, it translates that same word, faith. For example, it's used with Peter in Luke chapter 22, verse 32. 
Luke twenty two thirty two says, but I have prayed for you that your faith, pistis, may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And this idea of pistis, this idea of faith, really is this idea of deep conviction. The truth is everything around us in society and in culture, everything around us is constantly shifting and changing. And too often we allow ourselves to be tossed around by every wind of change or every wave of doctrine. And instead of basing our faith on deep and personal conviction, we base it on who the popular preacher of the day is and what his particular basic pet message is. That's not the way a Christian who is spirit-filled and living a transformed life lives their life. We don't get moved and swayed by the, the words of today, by the culture, by society. We stand firm in our convictions that are based in the word of God. It's the life that First Press has already chosen to live when we departed from PCUSA into ECO over the basicness of the sanctity of Scripture. We said we have a firm conviction that the scripture is our rule for life and faith and how we should live and we're not going to change the, what the scripture says because of society or culture. Everything around us is shifting and changing. But in this shifting and changing world, we need to be men and women of great conviction because of the power and the work of the spirit in our lives. There's a great, great question that Abraham Lincoln asked. Abraham Lincoln asked the question, how many legs does a dog have if you call his tail a leg? And then he answered the question, four, because calling a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. And that's the truth of how our convictions should stand. Just because culture says it's okay, just because society says it's okay, just because everything around us says something has changed and is now permissible, doesn't change the truth and the fact of Scripture. And here's what's amazing. What's amazing is that God has already given us the tools to live out this spirit-filled life of transformation and deep conviction. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Did you catch that at the beginning? And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to build us up, to build conviction in us. The truth is that Howard and Murray and Kim and Will and Debbie and Michael Ann and people like Dan and people like David Mullen and people like every single one of your uh, children's Sunday school teachers or a Gap Sunday school teacher, uh, people like Dick Doyle. God has given every single one of them as a gift to you. 
He uses them through the power of his spirit so that your life can be transformed. He uses them to build you into a person of deep conviction who's not tossed around but rather mature in their faith. Every time you see Murray, I want you to picture him with a big Minnie Mouse bow on his head. As a reminder that he is God's gift to you and this church. Every time you see Howard, Howard, picture him with a wrapping paper all around him. He is God's gift to you and this church to build you into a man or a woman of conviction. Because that's what a spirit-filled life is like. An, account, an encounter with the spirit will transform you. And it will make you into a person of deep conviction just like Stephen. But it's not just about being a person of deep conviction. It is about being a person grounded in the word of God. A person filled with the spirit who's been transformed is going to be grounded in the word of God. There's this long section that starts at chapter 7, verse 2, and actually extends through 53 of chapter 7. And it's this long section where, where um, Stephen gives this oratory, and it's beautiful. If you have the time to read it at home, please do. It's a beautiful oratory. I wish we could have gone verse by verse, but that's that big section. But it really is. Stephen gets arrested, and then he has to uh, come before the council, And when he's standing before the council, lies are told about him. Have you ever been lied on? I've been lied on. And my first reaction was to, if I'm lied on, my first reaction is going to be to say, nah, and try to defend myself. But Peter, rather Stephen, isn't about defending himself before the council when he's lied on. What he actually does is he begins to deliver this history of Israel. This defense of Christ using the history of Israel that's found in the scriptures. And he does it so beautifully and eloquently. And he starts with Abraham. And he moves on to Isaac and Jacob. And then he talks about Joseph and the famine in Egypt. And then he talks about Moses and the journey through the desert. He talks about Joshua and David and Solomon. He talks about Israel's historic disregard for the prophets of God. And he finishes with this scathing accusation of of the people in front of him being stiff-necked people because they murdered the righteous one. And it really is this beautiful story and history that weaves in and out. And he does this, and he's able to deliver this beautiful oratory, not because he's had hours and hours and hours and hours to sit down and write a sermon or write an oratory or write a message. That's not the way it happens. They bring it before the council, and he's able to deliver this, not because he's prepared it beforehand, but rather because he obviously had spent time soaking in the scriptures. If we're going to live transformed life, transformed lives, our transformed lives are going to be lives where we soak in the scripture and go deep in the word of God. I saw an amazing picture this morning. Uh, I wish I could have posted it. I just saw it this morning uh, from someone here at the church and they showed me a picture of their sister's Bible and it was falling apart. You open it and you see highlights and you see writings and you see notes shoved all in it and it was falling apart. And I thought that's what our Bibles should look like as Christians. Of course, now we're digital, so, you know, whatever. 
But it's this idea that it's, it's, a, it's an old cliche, but it's pertinent. It says a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who is not falling apart. We need to get deep into the scriptures. As a matter of fact, uh, Howard has told us on several occasions that the single best thing that we can do to spur our own personal spiritual growth is to get into the word of God regularly. This isn't a new idea that originated with Howard. This isn't an idea that originated with Willow Creek and the Reveal study. This is an idea that has its origins right there in Scripture, in the Scriptures that we accept as our rule for life and faith. For example, Psalm 119, uh, 119, 9 through 11, it says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I love that. God, I put your word in my heart because it's going to guide my life. I've soaked it in. It's gone in deep. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a light to my feet and a lamp to my path. Sometimes you don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. You don't know the next step to take because your path hasn't been lit by the word of God, but if you were to soak it in because of the transformation that the spirit of God brings, you'd be able to see that very next step you need to take. Romans chapter 15 verse 4 says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Sometimes you're hopeless because you haven't soaked in the scriptures. The scriptures are there to give us constant hope. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Howard reminds us every week. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. That's not something Howard made up. Made up. That comes from scripture. That comes from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8. It is this idea of if we are really a people who have encountered the spirit, our lives are going to be changed and they're going to be changed so much that we are going to be a people who wants to get in deep with the scriptures on a consistent basis. People who live a spirit-filled life and have been transformed by the spirit are people with deep convictions. People who live a spirit-filled life and are transformed by the spirit are people who are grounded deeply in the word of God. People who live a life filled with the spirit are people who understand the deep power of forgiveness. Stephen's oratory enrages them. They get mad. So mad that they rush him and take him from the city and stone him. And even then, he's really displaying his deep conviction. So they're preparing to stone him. He says, receive my spirit. It's that deep conviction. He knows where he's going. Receive my spirit. But that's not all he says. 
with his dying breath, with his dying breath, he mirrors the words of Christ. Acts 7, 60 says, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. See, that wouldn't be my initial reaction to someone who was throwing rocks so that they could kill me. My initial reaction would be, Lord, remember this, write it down in permanent ink, and don't you ever forget it. But Stephen lives a life transformed by the Spirit. And in his dying breath, he calls out for forgiveness for the very people who are taking his life. You and I are in love with the idea of forgiveness when we're the ones needing to be forgiven. I'm in love with that idea of forgiveness when I do something and my wife, and my wife gets upset and I'm like, I'm sorry, you better forgive me. <laughs> but we're not so in love with the idea of forgiveness when we've been offended and we have to forgive someone else. But here's what scripture tells us. I love this part. It's Colossians chapter 3 verse 13. It says, bearing with one another, if one has a complaint against another, write an anonymous email. It's not what that says. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, blast them full throttle with everything you've got. That's not what it says there. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, what? Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also, what's that word there? See, I don't think we like that word. One more time. So you also, what? Must forgive. You don't have the option. As spirit-filled, spirit-led Christians, we don't have, forgiveness is not a choice that we make It's a choice that God made for us already. This is required of us. As a matter of fact, we could could, um, look at Luke 17, verse 3 and 4. Luke 17, verse 3 and 4 says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must. Forgive him. You know what's really interesting about that word must? You know what that word must means? It means must. I mean, it's just that simple. There is not an option for Christians to not forgive. We must forgive. Our lives are transformed to such a degree that we're people that understand the deep power of forgiveness. I think sometimes forgiveness is difficult to extend because we don't understand what forgiveness really is. It's not pretending like nothing ever happened. It's not pretending like everything is okay. St. Augustine says this. Forgiveness happens 
when you surrender your natural desire for revenge. That's what forgiveness is. God, I have every right to want revenge, but I'm going to let it go and let you handle this. It's not easy, I know. But it's what God requires of us. Oh, but Orlando, you don't know what my dad did to me 20 years ago. You're right, I don't. Oh, Orlando, it's that you don't understand what that fa- how that family treated my family. You're right, I don't understand. But harboring that lack of forgiveness isn't what living this spirit-filled life is all about. When I was a kid, it won't surprise you, I was clumsy. The reason it won't surprise you is because now that I'm an adult, I'm still clumsy. And I'd fall and I'd get these great big scrapes on my arms or elbows or knees. And I'd have these big old scabs. And it would seem like it would take forever to heal. And now I know why it would take forever to heal. You know why? Because I'd get these big old scabs and you know what Orlando would do? I'd start picking at them. And then I'd open them up again, and there they go to bleeding again, and and they'd scab over. That's what lack of forgiveness is. You're picking at that scab all the time. And the truth is forgiveness is that gift we give ourselves that enables us to stop picking at that scab and to start healing God's calling us to live a spirit-filled life. A transformed life for his glory. That means understanding the deep power of forgiveness. That means being a people that soak themselves deeply in the word of God. That means being people of deep conviction. Again, the question this morning isn't, are you willing to die? Because I think we'd all say, I'm willing to die, but I won't do that. The question is, are you willing to live this transformed life because of your encounter with the Spirit of God? Are you willing to be a man or a woman of deep conviction? A man or woman who digs deep into the word of God. A man or woman who understands the deep power of forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and for your faithfulness. Thank you for our encounter with the spirit of God that has transformed our lives. Lord, as willing as we are to die for you, let us live out how you've transformed us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.